You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Lisa Sullen Davis is the author of Tomboy, The Surprising History and Future of Girls Who Dare to Be Different, as well as two other novels, Belly and Lost Stars. She's written articles and essays for the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, and many other outlets. And currently, she's hard at work on a book about the ideal of the housewife and how it's shaped public policies and private lives. Our conversation with Lisa was both rich and whimsical as we meandered onto some really fascinating topics, including a surprising history of the term tomboy, which personally I knew very little about until reading her work. Like many other open-minded liberal Americans, Lisa has undergone a familiar arc in her understanding of gender issues. She's experienced firsthand the unfortunate trend of silencing those who seek a deeper understanding of what gender nonconformity is all about in childhood. Lisa describes how she came to write her book, we examine the current state of journalism, and Lisa recounts how our understanding of gender rebels has evolved in society. She reminds us that we are not done learning, and the current zeitgeist, rather than being a kind of landing place for gender, should and will keep evolving. Here's our conversation with Lisa. Well, hello there, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How's it going? Very well. Uh, We have uh, uh, an eminent guest on our show today, um, the lovely Lisa Sellen Davis. And no. I read, I first came across you when I read your book, Tomboy. And I have to say that I was just so thrilled. It was just a yellow cover and Tomboy written on it. And I went, whoa, <laughs> this is for me. And I think that was my first kind of meeting with you. And it was about a year ago. And since then, I think you've you've really kind of engaged in all the different nuances um, in this this extraordinary world. We're glad you're here, Lisa. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I I listen to you religiously, so it's amazing to be on here. Oh, well, thank you. That's very sweet. So before we started, we were just kind of talking about, you know, how your um, writing and thinking about this issue has kind of evolved as you've gotten deeper into this topic. So maybe we can start um, before the book, what got you interested in this in this whole world, and why did you decide to write Tomboy? So the first thing I wrote related to this was in something like in 2013, and it was for Parenting Magazine, which has since closed. And I think like a lot of writers and journalists, when I had kids, I became interested in writing about parenting and really did not think about the implications of telling my children sort of private stories publicly. Um, and she was in preschool, and I didn't know anything about gender development. And, and now I realize that no one else did it either. <laughs> I mean, no, no one else in the preschool and no one, no one in the elementary school, you know, they didn't understand what, what does it mean when children start to divide more by sex 
you know, around age three when they go to preschool, if they do. And, you know, before they've all played together and suddenly they're dividing. And when they divided, lo and behold, mine did not go the way of the girls. And she just played differently than everyone. And she wanted a short haircut like her friend, her male friends. She played more with boys than girls. And I wrote about kind of grappling that with that as a feminist and, um, you know, wanting to have a child who was exceptional, but to fit in. And, and that article was titled, my daughter wants to be a boy. I didn't, of course I didn't write that title and no one, it was 2013. This was not an interesting subject to the media. And it was thrown up on the day that the, um, on the website, the day the magazine closed and it was never edited at all. And four years later, I wrote an, another piece um, after having all these experiences where people, what I realized now is people kept offering to socially transition my child, but I didn't even know that term then. And I thought it was really kind, but would she like to change in the boys locker room? And would she like a new pronoun? And which just all of these things that I thought like, that's very sweet, but why are you assuming that she can't be a girl just because she's rejecting the stereotypes associated with girlhood? And then I wrote about that. And I said very clearly in this piece, you know, I support trans kids, but we really need to separate out, you know, stereotypes and identity and not make these assumptions. And this, this was 2017. This was 2017. And what's funny is I, I stand, you know, I, I've done all this research, four years of intense research of living in this world, and I stand by that completely. Mm-hmm. But there was a big backlash, and I ended up, the way I responded to the backlash was partly by meeting with people who were opposed to the peace. Could I ask, what was the backlash? Well, the, the backlash was, you know, I'm a child abuser. I have a son and he's going to kill himself if I don't transition him. Um, what age was your kid at this stage? Seven or eight or... Uh, uh, yeah, eight, eight. Okay, sorry. Keep going. Wow. Okay, Th- those are serious accusations. That's not the same as you're thinking wrong about this problem or it's irresponsible to write transphobic things. They were accusing you of harming your own child, who clearly you had thought deep and hard about your daughter's gender nonconformity and trying to be accepting. So it's quite remarkable like the kind of backlash is a personal attack on you as a mother which that is dangerous and cuts very deep well i think it's the it's the way of the world now that you know the no the backlash did not really engage with my points very much it engaged with me as a person and i am a very fragile person actually so i was and you know i came to writing like so many people because I got an A plus on a paper, you know, in 10th grade. And then I spent the rest of my life trying to get an A plus from the world. So to be like, I have an op-ed in the New York times Mm -hmm. and then oops, you know, I'm, I'm being called all these names, but eventually I steeled myself and I read through them and I thought, which of these, let me, let me figure out which of these points are valid or, or, or at least what people mean when they're actually the few people who are arguing against my points. And one of those people was, you know, a famous lawyer for the ACLU who covers trans rights. And I met with him and 
he explained his case to me and and he you know interestingly a big one of his big points is we can't afford nuance which is so funny because you know nuance is what journalism should be all about and and it's psychology it's what the world is what humanity (laughs) is it's the essence isn't it really but we we can't afford nuance because it gets co-opted by the right wing and indeed i was invited on the laura ingraham show and i did not understand how anything i'd said would make it seem like i was a conservative and that turns out to be a huge issue, right? I mean, the, the worst part about this is the politicization of it. And so that anyone who speaks out, anyone who questions it is a conservative, which is just, it's just flatly not true. But the way this issue has been politicized on both sides um, has made it very hard for us to actually figure out what's going on. So that was you know, confusing, but instructive. And then I set about to write this book in which I I listened to the perspectives of those who, uh, who had objected to me, but also to the people who were very, very worried about losing whatever gains they had already made and worried about societal acceptance and being understood. And this seemed quite reasonable to me, and I wanted that for them too. So I wrote my book, in this way that was very subtly questioning certain parts of this narrative about, you know, what is a what is a trans kid? I ask in the book, I call up experts like Diane Aronsoft and I ask, how do you tell the difference? You know, what what is the difference between this one kid who's super dysphoric and going to grow out of it and this other kid who's dysphoric and it's going to persist? And how do we tell? And... And in the end, you Could know, I ask, do you remember her answer or how well, did that what go? She, what she said was, you know, when you have a girl who likes football or a boy who likes to play dresses, that's what you have. You have a girl who likes football and a boy who likes to play dresses. You don't know what that means. And you you have to spend time learning what it means. And I interviewed lots and lots and lots of people for my book who had stories like Stella's. They all had very similar childhoods, you know, and they either lived as boys or with boys. They were socialized in this way that really did affect them for life in very, very positive ways. I was very jealous of, you know, what what was conferred upon them by be, becoming comfortable with men and masculinity. It helped them get better jobs. There's so much good stuff oh, about interesting. it. interesting, yeah. Um, I think but, a lot of assertion, a lot of confidence in assertion yeah. and kind of that kind of kick ass thing. Yeah, but they had really boys hold that. Yeah, yeah, it, it follows them for life. But but their identities, you know, their sexualities, um, how they choose to live, if they want to change their bodies, that was all wildly different. And. You know, that became that that became the thesis of the book without saying anything about trans activism, without interrupting any narrative. My thesis was you cannot tell what childhood gender nonconformity, uh, pre- you know, will predict it. And, you know, Tom, as sexist as the word tomboy is, it was a category that protected girls and allowed them to experiment with masculinity 
um, in a way that was sanctioned, accepted, understood for the most part. Um, and then it ended at puberty. So that was that's the problem. Could I just say I, I like the word tomboy. I've always liked the word tomboy. I, I settle into that word and I think, yeah, I, li- I like it. Now, I'm not somebody who likes labels and identities as a rule, but that one obviously must bring me back or something because it's I just think it's nice. I like it. I think there's a real tragedy. There isn't equivalent for boys. And I know, uh, you know, let's say Genspect released, you know, the gender giraffe and they have they denoted Tom girls, which is a debatable one, really, because it should be probably called Faye girls or something like that. But the fact that there was word Tom yeah. suited me just fine. Tom, uh-huh. you know, yeah, so I can't see how Tom girls would go for this because they would want Vicky girls or. <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's well, a there would be Nancy boy, I suppose. Oh God, Maybe. no, it'd be Nancy girl. They need girl in it. You know, I don't know. Anyway, it's a, a point. <laughs> well, tomboy was originally, you know, d- described boys, and then it described lascivious oh. women, and then eventually described misbehaving girls who were rowdy and acting like boys, and it was an insult. I mean, it it had its own gender journey, that, tell, that tell word. Tell us just a little bit, because it's very interesting, where, where it started, the word tomboy. Well, I think it's very interesting. I think it started in the 16th century, and it was it was talking about the most boisterous boys, the most, the rowdiest and most difficult boys, because Tom is the male type, like a Tom cat or a Tom turkey, and then it was mixed with boys. So it never, originally had nothing to do with girls, and there's a book from 1906 that I think it's called something like Adventures of a Tomboy, and the author writes, why isn't it Tom girl? This makes no sense. The people have been objecting to the word for a long time, but I do think that's much less important the, the word and whether or not it's sexist or problematic is less important than the work it did. And the work it did was it allowed what I call in the book a protective bubble of ambiguity. And it just like it gave room for people to veer away from gender norms. And in the 70s, you know, the tomboy was kind of the most popular kind of girl. So girls were really actively encouraged to be physical, to wear, you know, boys' clothes. You could, there were conversion charts so that girls could shop in the boys' section. I mean, there were messages everywhere that you can reach over this line, and there's never, ever been this equivalent for boys. And and that message changed anyway, and it went from be masculine to eventually to the girl power thing of be totally feminine and you can still be powerful, but your, but your power comes from being pretty. So our idea, again, our idea of normal, that's what I'm interested in. Who gets to decide what's normal and how does it change? Mm -hmm. It's such an important question for right now, but you know, my childhood is so different from my child's where in my childhood, a lot of girls had short hair and were wearing those kind of clothes. But by the time I had a child, there were almost no girls like that around. And it wasn't understood anymore. Yeah, it makes me think about the, the fact that like we notice things only when there's some contrast to notice. And so, so much of what we consider, quote, non-conformity or conformity really depends on what the norms are at that time. And as you're kind of lifting up here, these things are in flux, they change. And so when you think about the distress that comes from noticing you're different, 
that depends too on like what kind of environment you grow up in and what time and place you are kind of coming to be yourself. And yes, it does. And then, and, and therefore how you label that or how you understand that. And so I think we are rushing to label that trans right now. And I think there was, you know, I think sometimes when you get, Sasha, you would use this term organically nonconforming. And sometimes when you get those kids and those kids will be from any demographic because right. it's inside them. So it's, it's not, not based on the culture and what's trendy. Like you said, in you know, at certain times girls were trying to be more tomboyish, but there are kids like yours who that's just how they are. They're born like that. Go they're ahead. born. Yeah. They're, they're born like that. And they're not influenced by social media or peer pressure. Um, they're not depressed, you know, but they're interested in performing the gender role of the opposite sex. And they, and they're aware of that very early and they're aware of their difference. And we, you know, again, like the thesis of my book was you cannot predict anything from that. And, and we are assuming now that, that that means a, a child is trans and often socially transitioning those children. And people are doing that on, on their own, you know, not even with the, the help of a therapist. And, and they're doing it because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And, you know, nobody, nobody knows how that affects a child. We, we have some speculation about it. Um, you know, Ken Zucker has speculated that it will increase dysphoria at puberty. But I, I think, you know, I think we're all, um, we're, we're doing that because we have a, an evolving cultural understanding. And now the understanding is that is a trans child. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that label does the work that tomboy did because it hadn't, you know, you don't have to change your name or your pronouns or, you know, your, you don't have to change anything about yourself. You're just allowed to exist in this liminal space in a way that doesn't upset adults. And yeah. I think it's, I think it's the adults who can't deal with the ambiguity. And in, in the new standards of care from WPATH for, for children, you know, it, it starts with, we don't know what it means. I wish I had them in front of me so we could read them, but you can link to them. Um, but it, but it puts front and center the idea that a child's gender dysphoria, gender nonconformity, cross-sex identity, that we cannot predict the future based on that. And it's so important for us to, to all know that. It just means your child is rejecting gender norms. And that is something to celebrate because gender norms are so difficult for children to navigate. And they're so restrictive. So if you have a kid who's naturally rejecting them, I just think you've, I think you've you know, won the lottery. And that's all. End it there. Just whoopee. You know, when you say that... Um that your child is naturally rejecting them. I think that's a valuable framing, but I can also see that these kids are not thinking about it actively. They're not saying because of my political stance, I'm going to reject these norms. These are kids that are just following a very natural, organic, innate way of being 
like for a better lack of a word, because sometimes I think there there might be like a more conservative view of gender nonconformity that says, well, if a child is rejecting these norms, it's because something is wrong. Maybe they're upset. Maybe they don't know how to be in normal girl quotes, air quotes, right? So I just want to emphasize that in your research for your book and, and all these other things you've written, it's very obvious, and I think we all intuitively know, for some kids, this is completely natural, normal, and healthy. And because we don't know how things will evolve, we, we also need to be careful to kind of protect these kids from having too many messages about the, the fact that they're different and what that means. So um, to kind of to kind of go back to your timeline, so like in 2017, you write this piece. There's a bunch of backlash. You start connecting and meeting with people who have different opinions, and then you write your book, trying to be quite sensitive to all these different arguments. Mm-hmm. So, what happens after you publish your book? Let's start there. I mean, I'm still figuring out what my um, last night. My friend said you should write an essay called my conversion therapy and you know about what what happened to make me feel that i that that the media was getting the story fundamentally wrong and i do think that to write my book i needed like i said i needed to i needed to ignore the kind of emergencies you know, I, I knew, I think I had talked to Lisa Lippman even, maybe even before she had published her first paper, um, because I was just, you know, doing what I do, which is calling people up to have conversations. And I knew in the back of my mind that things were going wrong, but I was talking to people for whom it was not going wrong, right? So I was telling that story. And you mean like trans people who are satisfied with yes. their transitions yes. and that kind of thing? Okay. And I mm-hmm. was talking to young people who had been very masculine girls and who had transitioned, and they were no different than the older butch lesbians that I was talking to. The difference was they had access to a technology and a different cultural understanding. And they were young, so I don't know, you know, 10 years from now, how they'll fear, how their bodies will be or... But they, you know, they were happy and the butch lesbians were happy that they had gone through the difficult puberty and dysphoria and gotten on the other side of it. So I had talked to people. I was not writing a book about this all going horribly wrong. I was writing a book about how to understand childhood gender nonconformity and where where our ideas of what's normal come from and mm-hmm. how to be accepting of these many different outcomes. And then I had this other idea for a book and I got I got interested I was reading about the early sexologists and one of whom who was gay I think his name was Carl Ulrich Sattinger I don't want to give my whole book idea away but anyway I got interested in I'm always interested in who gets to decide what's normal and I I don't think I've I'm not very good at being normal myself you know so I I it interests me who gets to say, who gets to decide what's a disorder? And so I, and I was very, very interested in this moment in which trans people are saying, we want to decide for ourselves. We want to tell you that we are normal and then we want to arrange things so that you, you know, to suit us, which is very reasonable 
and understandable. And we went from this is a this is a deeply disturbed individual to oh, this is just a this is a trans person, and a trans person needs this 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 and this. Some of them, of course, they all need different. They don't all need the same thing. So that really interested me, and. I wanted to talk to Ken Zucker because I, I had met him at a conference and I wanted to hear a little bit about how gender identity disorder became gender dysphoria and now is maybe going to become gender incongruence. And like what were what were the changes? And um and that's when he showed me the paper, the late the paper on 15 year follow-up of boys. And that I think it was 88% of them had desisted. And I had been reporting for some very large news organizations about gender stuff and trans kids and the bands. And, um, and I was like, oh, that's weird that no story in the mainstream media has ever mentioned the desistance rate. Can I say that, that that was exactly the premise of my own film. It was like, well, where's the kids who desisted like me? Yeah, they, they must exist. And and just before I'm really interested in this, but was a large was that the paper? I might get mixed up. Is that the paper where maybe seventy percent of them are gay, or am I mixing up yeah, the papers? Yeah, six. I think it was sixty-eight percent. Sixty-seven percent. We're something. we're gay. Yeah. yeah, which is also so interesting. Yeah. And fifteen-year follow-up is really significant. We yeah. don't we don't get papers with that kind of it's significant a, follow-up. So it's a very important piece of data. Yeah, it's important, but then we also have to situate it in its cultural context in which these people were, were living in a world in which they were constantly getting messages that it was not okay to be trans. And they were, you know, and Ken, I was interested in Ken's own biases and what does he think is normal and how does that affect, you know, this, this might, I just want to like soak myself in all that. I find that very intellectually stimulating. I just want to take a bath in that question of, Who's deciding this and what are their own biases? But the whole media has changed so that subjectivity matters more than objectivity. And the kind of own voices literature movement that is now part of the media and and related to this question of who gets to decide it's normal. So we're going to tell our own stories. No one can talk about this if you're not in the group, which is the opposite of how it used to be, which is I... You know, you, you, it's a conflict of interest, right? Mm. And now it's now oh, it's wow. only we only we can tell our stories, and so I think that I think those data are important. I think all those desistance papers are important, but we also have to situate them in the cultural context in in which those data were collected, and that's why we need <laughs> research now. Everything has changed. Our, our idea of normal has changed and our populations have changed. So much of the research is based on who is showing up at gender clinics and, and you know, who show, is showing up at the clinics has radically changed and why they're showing up has radically changed and who has the proper mindset, information, background, education to evaluate them and decide their trajectories. It's, you know, I don't have answers to any of these questions, but it just seems to me that we need a ton of research. And I believe that every child who is socially or medically transitioned needs to be followed up with on a very regular basis for a long period of time. I think we need to be collecting data because we don't know how many 
detransitioners there are. We don't know how many medical problems there are. We don't know how many people are absolutely thriving and, and so psyched and really happy 15 years in. We just, we don't know. And, you know, what happened to me as I learned more and more is I tried to sell articles about that. And I tried to put that in articles of like, well, you know, um, Sweden and Finland have pulled back on this and England did, but then it was overturned. And, you know, other countries from a non-political place are reevaluating this medical approach to gender dysphoria. And at one point I slipped that into a story and then, you know, one of the few people writing about this said, oh, you're the only person in the entire mainstream media to have mentioned that. I've been watching. And, you know, that's crazy. Anyone who is writing about trans kids should, there are things they should know, right? They should know that we don't have good research. They should know that other countries are pulling back or banning it for non-political reasons. They should know that we using the term trans kid for a six or eight year old is problematic because we actually don't, we don't know what that six or eight, who that kid is going to be. I mean, there are just so many parts, so many stories that are not being told. So what happened when you put in that thing about Finland into your piece? Right. So if you recall, I was kind of writing this book and doing this work, hoping to be embraced by, you know, trans, the cringe community and trans organizations and feeling like I could probably talk about gender norms and how they affect kids and, and not be an enemy. Um, but it was eating away at me that I knew all this information and wasn't that no one else seemed to know. So when you talk to parents and they've never heard of detransitioners, they have no idea that any other country is concerned about this medicine and I just thought, I, ha- I have to do this. So I just slipped it in there. And, and I, one of the things that happened was that I used the word detransition and I got a note from an editor saying, um, well, I've been told not to use his name, but a, a, a kind of famous activist doctor who's actually, I think, just still a trainee. Oh, um, yeah. I think um, everyone yeah. knows yeah, who yeah, you're talking Yeah, yeah, everyone knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, it said, don't, don't, don't use that word because he says it's fraught. And I was like, this, this was from very high up at this very large news organization. And I thought, wait, the style guide, I asked to see the style guide. And, you know, I thought, oh, so these kind of activists have remade the style guides of these news organizations. And can I just pause there? Like, that is absolutely Pravda, like in, in, in Soviet Union, like that yeah. a style guide is, uh, is kind of saying certain words shouldn't be used. And those words are actually concepts and people's experiences. Yeah. So they are effectively being wiped out. It's, it's an extraordinary depth of, of impact yeah. to wipe out an experience by wiping out a word. And, and to wipe out information that would help our understandings of sex, gender, and sexuality evolve. Because they have been evolving, and they need to keep evolving. And I under, really, really understand a, a certain kind of trans activist position of, I like where we have it now. Where we have it is, 
many people are afraid to speak up. And so we have control over the narrative and we want to be seen like this. This is all I'm, this is understandable. And no no um, space for nuance, right? Yeah. This is a great example. And, and we have the understanding where we want it, Mm -hmm. but actually we're not done. We're not done with everyone who says they're trans is trans and give everyone the medicine who wants the medicine. We aren't, we can't stop there because we have too many stories that interrupt that. And we have to take all of the information in. We also have um, very nuanced clinicians who are afraid to speak. Now, obviously, we have Erica Anderson and we have Laura Edwards Leeper and they have spoken up. But they have colleagues who share their sentiments and are afraid to talk. And I've talked to some of those people. They don't want the hate. They don't want the scrutiny. They feel they're doing good work. And um, they don't want to draw any attention to themselves or what they're doing. And people don't know the difference between that kind of approach and the blind affirming approach. And they don't accept that there is a difference. And... None of this, none of this is covered. I mean, that alone, that's an interesting story. I think that's what I was trying to write. I wanted to write about that when I, when I wanted to write this story about gender dysphoria that I interviewed you both for. Yeah. Let's tell a little bit about that. So, so I had been covering a lot of these issues for an organization and I, they asked me to write a kind of service piece about gender identity. But at this point I was like, hmm. I think we need to really look at the concept of gender identity and where it came from and, you know, question whether or not everyone has a gender identity or if that was a way to explain people who felt like they were, you know, their senses of themselves didn't match up with their body. And at that point, I, I, I knew a lot. So I mm-hmm. thought this I'm going to earlier this year, right? This was, yeah, a few months yeah. ago. Okay. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to interview Stella and Sasha and I'm going to interview, you know, the nuanced people. And I, and I maybe will interview some totally non-nuanced blindly affirming people. And I'll write an article in which I talk about different ways to approach this. Now, I mean, if you think about it, isn't that the job? Shouldn't anyone be doing that? Shouldn't, shouldn't anyone covering this be interviewing people with multiple points of view? For, for and every do, subject. That's the journalist's for every job. Subject. Yeah. Yeah. But not for this one. This yeah. subject, there's only one thing you could say. So I decided I was going to do that. But because, oh, we didn't talk about that. Because after I wrote this news piece where I mentioned Finland, Sweden, mm, mm-hmm, England, right? Mm-hmm. After I wrote that, I was uninvited to speak at a conference, um, you know, a gender conference for families with trans kids. And I was going to give my presentation that I give about the history of gender norms and where they come from and and, and their I, impact on kids. May I clarify, what was the reason they gave? So you hadn't really said very much about gender other than very, really quite affirmative at this point and very gentle. Well, what they'd said was after I wrote that article, it caused some, it made some staff members uncomfortable. And then they went through my Twitter and then the guy read me, the executive director read me all of the tweets that had disqualified me for the conference that were saying things like, you know, this two-year-old may be trans and also may not be. Oh my God. So, um, was that a tweet? Yeah, there was a, yeah, I was commenting on some 
good morning Britain story or something. And just that's always been my thesis. I haven't hidden I haven't exactly. hidden that point exactly. of view. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. It's interesting how social media specifically was kind of used against you, whereas you had written this whole book (laughs) saying, we don't know what will happen. And WPATH says, we don't know what will happen. But like you write the wrong tweet. Yeah, yeah. 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 But Amazing. I think it was, it was, it was, I think all of these things together led to a certain amount of liberation. I certainly don't feel free totally, but I just thought I, I muzzled myself to get your acceptance and I can't, and I, and I can't muzzle myself the way each, it's like each week you need to muzzle yourself more. The range of acceptable viewpoints narrows at the more we go on. So So then I decided I would write this piece and I would just interview a lot of different people and say, actually, there's a real controversy about how to treat gender dysphoria. Um, But I decided, and this was probably a mistake, but I thought if I get backlash, I need support. So I'm going to explain to my editor what's really going on and I'm going to tell her my concerns because I thought we had a good relationship. Um, And... I'm going to, um, I, I don't know if I was getting permission or, you know, I wanted to say, feedback. Or, <laughs> I just wanted her to have my back. Yeah. And so anyway, yeah. Then she said, well, that's not the story we want. And then, so the story was killed and, um, and I was never, I have written a couple of things about gender and gender norms, but I have not written about trans kids again. I don't know if that was four or five months ago. And, you know, that wasn't a good feeling. And, and then I, and then I, and then I decided I called up several friends who are very serious, heavy hitter journalists, magazine journalists, you know, the few that still exist. And, um, I said, look, I'm, I'm sitting on this story. I've talked to dozens of people now. There are real abuses going on. There's an enormous cultural misunderstanding. It's going on in the it's being perpetrated by the perpetuated by the media and in schools and we've just got the story wrong and you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. And they all said you are going to write a pitch and you're going to send it to the New York Times magazine. Because I think the New York Times is really important in all of this. I think the New York Times sets the tone for all liberals, right, more than any other publication. And that's where I had started writing about this, right? That was my first op-ed. I've had three more, I think, since then there. And, and always arguing the super nuanced point of view, and about normalizing gender nonconformity, normalizing masculinity in girls, and quietly asking, 
you know, asking us to question the dominant narrative that we've arrived at now. Um, so your and, friends and tell you to write, to write mm-hmm. for New York Times or pit, pitch some pieces to New York Times. To the New York Times magazine, which magazine. is, you know, div- editorially separate from the newspaper. Okay. And that, you know, for me, what, what would that mean? Because then it's really coming out. It's, um, I mean, it, it would have been an amazing opportunity, but what would it mean for my children? What does it mean to be publicly labeled hateful? Um, but we talked it over a lot and I decided to do it and I spent months doing it and they didn't take it. And they said, someone else is going to write something. And that turns out to be true. So someone is going to write something and I don't know what it's going to be. Um, but then I just tried the pitch everywhere. I tried Harper's, I tried, you know, uh, reason, you know, which is the like libertarian magazine. Just like, who will take this story about, you know, the, the kind of rush to medicalization and the um, the shifting understanding of what's of what gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria means. And the answer was no one. No one took it. And then I wrote a whole bunch of op-eds. I keep writing them. Um, I write op-eds about detransitioners and no one take no one has taken a single piece. So I started a Substack out of desperation. And it's horrible because it's it's like being my own NPR you know, fundraising drive all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm just like begging people to pay me to write. Ah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I know that. you don't want to do it, but I do feel it seems to be the way forward. When you look at, you know what, for example, Abigail Schreier is putting out in her Substack. it seems to be a new concept. It, it works if you already have a big platform and it, and it works if you're didactic. I mean... It's crazy that the entire left has just has just abandoned all of this so that only Abigail Schreier reports it. And what she's reporting is so shocking. Yeah. And if it was if it was about anything else, the entire left would be so outraged. But they all just dismiss it because it's Abigail Schreier, who I think actually is a conservative. So it's it's the left's media, mainstream media's duty and I'm not I'm not saying that we shouldn't listen to Abigail because she's, you know, conservative. I think I think her reporting is top notch and I have it is shocking what she's reporting, mm-hmm. but we shouldn't be leaving it to her. Spread it, spread it around and put it in the mainstream media because parents are getting their normal from the New York Times. And the New York Times is telling them writes a story about puberty blockers, doesn't mention these other countries that are have decided to pull back or ban them altogether doesn't mention the 14 year old with osteoporosis you know just doesn't like they're just not meant they're they're why are we leaving this for tucker carlson you know i mean i remember when because i've been i've been like working in this field from this perspective since about 2016 i started researching about 2014 and of course at the time it was like a desert of silence. Nobody was talking about this. And then Jesse Single wrote the Atlantic piece and everybody was, well, everybody who kind of comes from this perspective was freaking out because it was the first time there was at least mention of the possibility that maybe some kids won't benefit from transition. And of course he was thrown under the bus. And I mean, I don't know much about the field of journalism specifically, but I know that he took a ton of heat for that. And 
he's he's kind of changed his perspective a little bit back and forth. Like he's tried to be incredibly um, non-controversial and very um, supportive of transition as a general principle. And that still wasn't enough. Kind of like when you said, I've bent over backwards trying to get everyone's approval and it wasn't good enough. And so could I just point out that like, that was a very small window, if you follow me, like pre, let's say, 2010, what Jesse Single wrote, what you would have written, what everybody would have written for, for hundreds of years was perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. And then there was maybe, uh, from maybe 2010, 2012 onwards, suddenly it became forbidden. So we're very new in this forbidden territory. I don't know why I have this need to say it, but it's like, this is just a new kind of concept yeah. that suddenly got slammed into into society a press banged in but sorry Sasha I jumped in on you no go ahead Lisa well I think it I think you know that's part of the cultural pendulum swing right from it went from like who would do that to children to you must do that to children and if you don't it's child abuse or everyone debating what child you know each side (laughs) saying one side saying not transitioning children is child abuse and another side saying transitioning children is child abuse when you wrote yours in 2013 and then 2017, that was almost reflective of the window, is it? Because 2017, well, they were all over you. 2013, also, was, I mean, it, it didn't, no, yeah, nobody cared. And it wasn't the New York Times or the Atlantic, right? It was, I mean, I liked Parenting Magazine, but, you know, it would just, it would just went unnoticed and people didn't read it. I just think 2013 wasn't a, wasn't a big preoccupying topic. And then by 2017, it was massive. And Jesse yes. Single writing this was like shock. It was such a short, yeah. massive revolution happened. Well, uh, here's the thing that I think changed. Because in, tw- in 20, I wrote my piece in 2017. And the Times was, it got, you know, it went hugely viral. And the Times kept promoting it and promoting it and promoting it. And wanting more eyes on it. And wanting more clicks. And... Because I think at that, I think in 2017, it was, uh, it was still uh, debatable, all this entire concept. And then Jesse wrote his piece the next year. And the backlash to that was so, was even, was more severe than mine. And I think that it certainly changed the Atlantic's approach. I mean, the next, very next thing they published was like, a thing about Joe Olson's research that was like trans kids know who they are. Right. So it was really the kind of the opposite. And I think they, it's an amazing publication, but I think they're still treading very carefully on this topic. So I think, I think that level of backlash, I think other publications must have seen that and thought either we don't want to touch it. That's one thing. It's either we don't want to touch it or, um, or it's our, you know, the other thing that has happened to the media in the kind of post-Trump world of it's our job to protect marginalized people, not it's our job to find the truth. So there's there many different zeitgeist shifts that happen. And, and the, I, think, I think another zeitgeist shift that happened was snowplow parenting. I really do think, I think that might be part of... Oh, I do too. I wrote a book in 2016 called Cottonwool Kids, and it was very much about, you know, helicopter parenting, over-intensive parenting. And again and again and again, I revert to the things I learned from Cottonwool when I was studying, because obviously it was my first book, so it was the one I certainly put years and years and years of research (laughs) into. And yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Very connected. 
It's child-led rather than child-centered, for starters. Yeah. Yeah. And people think, you know, I assume they're socially transitioning their kids because they've been told that you need to affirm. They've been told that, you, you know, you, if you don't do that, your child will kill themselves, too. It's just such a terrible thing to say to a parent. And kids are told that. I mean, I interviewed several people who, kids who were told that by the psychiatrists and psychologists, I mean, and that's what I mean by there are abuses. Like I, someone tells me this, what am I supposed to do with it? It's just like sitting there festering in me. And then I try to write something, you know, I don't know. I, I've, you know, I'm, I am having a little bit of faith that it is going to get better and that, you know, there is going to be, I think more, I think more people are feeling comfortable either comfortable speaking out or that they just can't shut up anymore and the scariest part of this whole thing has been the silencing and the people feeling that they're going to lose their job they're going to lose their kid they're going to lose their social standing and it is so terrifying that a school and a, a a doctor, a therapist can come between a parent and a child. And that, in fact, they seem to take that as their mandate. I mean, they believe that that's what they should do. And it makes, if, if you are the parent of a gender nonconforming kid or a gender dysphoric kid or a kid identifying as trans, and you don't want to go along with this, it's terrifying as you know from talking to so many parents. And you don't ever know if someone's going to call Child Protective Services on you because of your belief system. And you may think, you know, you may have one of the kids who really would benefit from this, but you may think, I'm very sorry, you've got to go through your endogenous puberty. It's going to be hard. We're going to get through it. And then you can make some decisions later because it isn't safe for your body. You know, we don't have enough information to know if it's safe. And yeah, you'll have scars or you won't pass and you're going to be non-conforming. And you're not going to fit neatly in the category you want to fit into. And I think that goes, that goes back to my quest, which is to normalize gender non-conformity. That some kids really are different than other people who share their same sex category. And we have to make that okay. What do we have to do? I mean, you had said before about being careful about the messages we give these kids. And right now the message we give these kids is you can change your sex and you don't have to be a boy or a girl regardless of your sex. And people have decided those are social. Some people have decided those are social, not biological categories, but we haven't all decided that. And I think most of the world doesn't believe that. And when you tell a child that, it makes it very hard for them then to, to go through puberty, I think. Um, and, it, and it makes puberty seem like it's an aesthetic choice. Yeah. And Which they, do you want? They lead, you know? I feel um, that the narrative leads children to think it's simple, that it, there's not a lot to it. And it actually carries a very heavy medical burden and it carries a very heavy psychological burden. And I don't think either the kids honestly can't conceptualize that. And also they aren't being taught it anyway. They're not being told right. it. So they're big lacks. And I think that's 
where we're really kind of neglecting the uh, the child at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge. I I can't. It, it is really difficult to understand. I mean, on the on the one hand, I very much relate to um, f- altering your body for psychological relief. Uh, you know, as someone about to have a very large birthday and having my, you know, in the grips of perimenopause and just having a body that is quite very unrecognizable to me now, you know, where I call, I think I wrote an op-ed for the times about this and I called it the second puberty and it is unpleasant. Mm. And if, if I were rich and a different kind of person, I'm, I would be, liposuctioning and lifting I'm I do all kinds of things and I, you know I would be doing that not because it's medically necessary I would be doing that to relieve psychological distress and I do think it is a kind of gender affirming surgery I think they're quite related and so I get it I get that changing your body can, can make you feel better um but I also think it's presented to kids as a panacea and it's not, you know, <laughs> and they and I and I think puberty is about so much more than which secondary sex characteristics you get. And I and and, you know, I think someone there's someone in my family who's kind of the person I like the most in the world. And she's an emergency pediatrician and she's seen gender dysphoric kids show up in the emergency room. And I just keep saying to her, when when has everyone when have kids been treated for suicidality with hormones? I mean, what? How does that make sense to you? And she said, Well, my, you know, she's gay and she has lots of trans friends. And she said, Well, they wish they'd been able to do it younger so they wouldn't have the scars. And I'm just kind of like, I don't, I don't. It's not about aesthetics, right? It's. There's so much more that happens during puberty than just people are going to see you differently because of your secondary sex characteristics. I'll tell you what, you know, something that's been on my mind a lot is that, you know, I'm a therapist. Obviously, I believe that psychotherapy, when done properly, can give people a new perspective on who they are and themselves. And what I see, especially with like the adolescent onset kind of kids, which are, I think, really different from the early, early onset kids, they come to the therapist or the gender clinic or whatever, and they're really suffering. Like these are kids who are struggling with self-harm and they feel totally alone in the world and they hate themselves and they come to the professionals and they want to know, why am I hurting so badly? And the answer they get is, oh, just because you need a higher levels of testosterone in your body. It's such a superficial answer and it completely misses the point. And that's not to say that for some kids, there's some aspect of their distress that is about their secondary sex characteristics. And that would help a little bit. But like these are really profound struggles that adolescents go through and specifically ones who are lonely and suffering and have problems And it feels like a real poverty of meaning when we tell them, oh, well, let's just look through the DSM and figure out what you have, and that'll give you the answer to your problems, because they're looking for something much more profound, which is, I want my life to matter. I want to feel okay every day when I wake up. I want to care about things that I do. I want to have interests and hobbies. Like You can't get that from a diagnosis, whether it's gender dysphoria or ADHD or OCD, like 
these are insufficient responses to kids who are really struggling. And that's what kind of I've been thinking about more and more because we, we can talk a lot about who gets to decide what's normal, right? Who gets to decide which kids get the treatment? But that's still not answering this bigger question that that's really been on my mind as I go through, you know, it feels like people are starting to wake up. Maybe, yes, there's a medical scandal going on. I think more people are realizing that. But I feel like there's another scandal, which is that people don't have really good psychological care. Yeah. And, and, and it is, you know, we're in a country where it's with terrible health insurance. You and I are, Sasha. And, and, you know, and it's expensive and there's a shortage of therapists and all over the world, kids are having mental health crises and it's very hard to find someone good. And I, and I think if most therapists, if they sign up for like a gender training so they can, you know, put that on their psychology today profile, you know, what are they learning in the gender training, right? They're learning affirm, affirm, affirm. I mean, I think part of the problem, too, is what do any of these words mean? What does affirm mean? I mean, that that can be a perfectly who doesn't want to be affirmed? Sure. You know, right. And what does gender mean? And what I mean, I'm always, you know, I keep seeing these reporters saying I'm now I'm covering gender for this publication. And I write, what does that word mean to you? And and, you know, and how do we. And, and why is helping a child feel comfortable with themselves, their, with their body, it's so sad that that's being marked as conversion therapy. And, you know, and, and how do we muster good psychological help for kids who are suffering? And then what do we do when we realize that so many kids are not getting good help? Because I think that's, you know, that is what it comes down to is Kids are not being served by being trained in in school that biological sex isn't real, which you know is is happening in my kids' elementary school. And I've made a, I've just been a real jerk about it. And I send them all my things from the Substack, and they invited a speaker, and I sent her the things. And I'm just kind of like, when you tell everyone that biological sex is not real you know, I will be, I will be interrupting you. And, and, you know, if someone, someone in the school has socially transitioned their child and that's fine, but we're not all going to say biological sex isn't real because you did that. And, you know, we, it's, it's, you know, did, was that the, is that the best thing to do? I don't know, but I feel like we have to live in a world where we can ask these questions and it's such a powerful technology, this ability to change the appearance of your sex. And it seems to me that it comes with a very high cost. And as Stella said, a physical cost and a psychological cost. Changing your identity is a big deal. And I'm, you know, I'm sure it's an enormous relief for some people. And then there are all those people who do it and realize, well, that wasn't the problem. And why didn't, and why didn't someone help me figure out what the problem is? And it's, it's wonderful. Everyone wants to just take a pill and feel better. Our whole society is based on that. That is our healthcare system uh, here. And that is actually a crucial point, that this is just a medicalized view of, of how to live. And so if there's an issue, where's the pills? 
And some of us don't take that view. We take a more holistic view that there's mind, body, there's there's interaction between the two. And sometimes maybe pills aren't the answer. And sometimes pills might mask things and sometimes pills might lead to further problems. And so maybe a psychological view. And you know that fra- phrase, the least invasive first, that's a well accepted concept. And uh, it is not being applied in the context of gender. And nobody's explained I mean, I, that I, why, you know. I think it's being applied in some places, but I think part of the problem is we don't know which are the good places and which are the scary places. We don't know. It's very hard for if parents want to take their kid to someone who isn't going to blindly affirm, for lack of a better term, who's going to question and push back and try to get at the heart of the distress, they don't know how to find that person. And then you have therapists who say, I just, I'm not just like the media. I just don't want to touch it. Right. I, you know, we had a friend who was like my child, a a lifer, as I call them. And got starting to get very upset. And I said, don't go to the, don't go to the clinic, you know? And she said, find me someone. And now I know a ton of people, but I still was so, I'm in New York city, you know, and I came up with one name. I came up with one name. And of course that person had no openings and parents are now having, again, this is an amazing story, right? I've pitched this story. But, you know, these underground networks and they're yeah. using fake names and, you know, therapists can't, can't advertise as I'm not a... I mean, now you've started the, the Gender Exploratory Explor- Therapy Association. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So now people, you know, there is starting, again, people feeling safe coming out with their ideological bents, you know, that are different. But it's, just, it's, it's very just hard. The truth. I mean, the truth it's comes out. Truth. It, it, we can't. You know, we're, we're kind of tiptoeing around this as though we've come up with this bizarre theory. <laughs> the bizarre theory is what's new. We're the ones saying, "Wait a minute, we all have bodies. How did we all get here?" Like, we we know gender nonconformity is related to sexual orientation. Like, that's what I really love about your recent piece in your Substack. You outline like what we have known for so so long about childhood gender nonconformity being inextricably almost tied to sexual orientation. So it's actually this whole trans and kids thing. That's the novel story. That's the new story. And I just think it's unsustainable. And that's why we're starting to see people popping up because you can't, you can't do that for long without consequences unfolding. And I think it, you know, I do think it's important to know that, you know, there, I mean, there are many trans people who are incredibly happy that they change their bodies and feel so much better in the world, adults, and they want that for children. And, um, and they felt like they always knew, though we know that hindsight is twenty twenty. so we, you know, it's hard, it's hard to know. But um, I understand wanting to spare the kids some pain. But again, I think it's related to the snowplow parenting thing because I just think pain, I mean, avoiding, I've done so many terrible things in my life and to myself trying to avoid pain. And, (laughs) and, you know, we have painful things, right? I I, I remember somebody saying, you know, avoidance contaminates our future. It's it's a really good Mm, point. It really can. Yeah. But I, I think, for me, because I feel like 
my job is to understand things from multiple perspectives. And it's what I like about my job because I feel like I actually have a compassion deficit in life and in dealing interpersonally. I'm just like not good. So it's a, it's wonderful for me to be forced to do this professionally. And I never want to forget the perspectives of trans people who do feel either that their lives have been saved or that, you know, they made a really, really good decision and it was worth whatever they had to live through. And however, there's really, I don't think there's a clear way to tell who's going to end up being that person and who's going to end up being the regretter. And, you know, I think, and again, you know, your, your very feminine male child might end up being gay. There are some feminine straight men too. So you, who knows? And you and, and also that child may just feel, I, I want to have a woman's body so much. I want to be perceived as a woman. It's causing me so much stress. And I would never want to say, even though I can't relate to that feeling, I would never want to say to an adult, you know, no, you can't do that. But we have to acknowledge, A, that it's very hard to tell who's going to persist and who's going to desist, you know, and that we have to feel pain. And yeah, we we have to... I've struggled so much with emotion regulation and distress tolerance. I struggle to teach it. I talk about it to my kids, but, you know, I'm usually freaking out when I'm like, you have to tolerate some distress, you know? (laughs) I'm your sister. (laughs) And and I think wanting to protect kids from pain is noble, but it reminds me of the perimenopause thing when I started writing a lot about perimenopause and people were, you know, talking to women who were trying to find solutions for the various ways their body was just suddenly becoming this thing they had to manage. And they were just so disappointed when it turned out it's diet, exercise, and sleep, you know, hygiene. (laughs) You know, like, God almighty, I've got to just eat a lot better, and I've got to go to bed early, and I have to put my phone in the other room, and I have to meditate. Oh, my God, that's the solution to everything is meditation? Who wants to do that? Where are the pills, I ask you. (laughs) Where are the pills? Where are the pills? But it turns out that getting skills to cope with distress, even if you make that choice later to transition, that... That's the best thing for everyone in the whole world is and and I I think what I one of the things I worry about is the narrative that goes along with this idea of trans which is teaching kids that their subjective reality matters more than anything objective so the subjective experience of gender matters more than the objective reality of sex complicated though it may be in some ways by differences or disorders of sex development, but it's not that, you know, not nearly as complicated as people are making it out to be. And, you know, I just feel like this, you know, this fragility and victimhood that is going with it, it seems so unhealthy. And I have those problems of being overly fragile and prone to a sense of victimhood. And it's, it's just a horrible way to live. 
so again, I just kind of go back to what if we taught kids that, you know, that this is your body, you have a sex, it's beautiful and perfect the way it is. And it, and though many, though it's often predictive of who you're going to love or how you're going to behave or it's also sometimes not. And if you're, if you're different than the other people in your sex, then, um, you are lucky and special and you're perfect. You're perfect how you are and you don't need to change a thing about yourself. It's the opposite of the message those kids are getting. And if you're deeply uncomfortable and really, really upset, like, yeah, you need help. You need help to be, you need help to, to get through this difficult period. And if you're a teenager who's not like those other, those organically non-conforming kids and you're also deeply distressed, you need compassion and you need time to explore and you need those distress tolerance skills. You know, you don't, I don't think, you know, I, I, I don't, how do we create like robust people instead yes. of fragile people? Yes. yes. Well, I don't know because I'm not one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you, you obviously have learned from being someone who def- defines themselves as fragile, that feeling robust in the little moments that you have has really served you. And I think that's a really good teacher, like your own experience here. So Lisa, we're, we're really grateful that you came on. It was absolutely lovely conversation. It was so nice to hear about all of your work and, and all of your experiences around this. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really am. Um, I'm hopeful that we're going to be having deeper, more complex conversations in the media, and that will allow people to feel all over, feel freer to speak up. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks for making media where we can do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's the goal. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 